Up next, we've got Christian Clemenson, who's going to speak to us about machine learning in pricing models. Christian is a senior director at Willis Towers Watson, being responsible for the non-life activities in the Nordics since 2011. He also has a wider role of looking after the software sales in select markets, which is why he travels to South Africa from time to time, and some people might have seen him here before. He holds a degree in actuarial science from the University of Copenhagen, and before joining Willis Towers Watson, worked in the Nordic, Nordic insurance industry for more than 15 years. He's a fellow of the Danish and Swedish actuarial associations. Thanks, Christian. Thank you, and thank you for the introduction. Thanks for the invitation to come and speak today. Um, impressive number of people. Uh, I'm a bit at unease standing in front of Deloitte sign speaking today, so please don't post anything on Twitter or <laughs> LinkedIn. Millerman, I think you can't see that one. Also, one disclaimer, I don't have any mentioning of nude or sexy nudes or pornography in my speak, speech, or I just managed actually to put them in, so. Being a consultant, I'm moving to a slightly more colorful cover slide. In Willis Towers Watson, we work in consulting uh, insurance companies, and in that we also uh, consult on machine learning. Uh, we're, of course, known to be kind of backbone GLM people, we sell software. But because we also sell software, it means that um, uh, machine learning come, becomes relevant from a development perspective. And we've already taken, taken measures uh, in, in that respect. So, talking about machine learning, it means different things to different people, and who's interested in what, uh, this is the heading here. In the news, it's typically around autonomous cars or a computer learning itself how to play Go. Uh, that's what gets the, seems to get the most attention. Today's talk is going to be more like solving regression-type problems and uh, classification-type problems. Rather more boring, one could say, but hopefully in this audience, uh, a bit of interest as well. This talk is primarily about uh, machine learning and pricing. So that's also the title of the talk, so no surprise there. But the application of machine learning and insurance is already uh, more broad than that, um, and quite uh, much so. I don't know why the, it seemed to have landed in the remit of pricing for some reason, but it, there must be some sort of perception, uh, <clears throat> and I was happy to see the the count before the, before the, um, the convention started, that so many pricing people are, are here today. There, there must be a perception that, that pricing holds the most um, complex analytical problems in an insurance company, and therefore machine learning just dropped in that box. But really, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, other stuff is going on, and the first project, actually we have the Nordics covering machine learning, is within claims, and we do a counter-fraud claims uh, modeling using top topic modeling with a, with a Swedish client. So I'm going to talk about um, pricing, or mainly today, but be aware that it's, it's applicable in a lot of other areas in insurance. None of this is new, actually. So, so we've had GLMs uh, for quite a while, and it's kind of uh, 
evolved um, over a line from, from having a very few factors uh, over data enrichment to use uh, GLMs and demand models and so forth. And, and the recent, um, let's say, tide of data enrichment is only the, the latest development. But um, other non-GLM methods has actually, uh, have actually existed for, for that entire period. And I think some of the models we're going to show on the screen today is, is, is dating back to the 1950s. So why is all of this uh, then in, in so much vogue as at the moment uh, or during the last couple of years? Uh, that has perhaps mainly to do with what's in the hexagonal boxes. And I don't know if you can read all the text from the, from the last row there, but there's still three seats up front. But uh, open source environments has a lot to do with it. So, so say R or Python is now available to, to the entire uh, world, not just uh, insurance companies who, who buy software, and, the, and perhaps the, the, the common libraries that are built uh, in, in that environment. Um, of course, also computational resource and scale. We can now fit more data uh, than we could in the past without, without spending a whole day doing it. And lastly, but not leastly, and we'll come back to that uh, during the talk, uh, the presence of data, uh, both internally in, in companies, you store more data now than, than ever, but also op open source data or, or public data that can be retrieved um, through, through different sources. So this is not new, and it's been around for a while. Today, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk only about a subset of models, and there, there are many more that exist already, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one thinking that many more will be developed and exist in the future. And actually, we also talk to clients about developing uh, new models, making up new models, uh, bespoke models to, cover, uh, to, to solve specific problems. Um, and and I, th I think that's going to be prevalent in the future as well. What I'm going to do today, after this annoying... Um, uh, slide finisher <laughs> is pick out, pick out a couple of these. Uh, sorry, I was, I was looking for the, the, work, the word animation. Um, pick out a couple of these uh, to talk about because I haven't got much time and, and I don't want to eat too much into a coffee break. Um, and if I do, then blame Emma. Now, um, pick out just a few and I'm talk more about if and why they're relevant than the actual models themselves. So if you came today, uh, just to uh, learn about the interesting math in, in, in machine learning methods, I'm going to disappoint you. Okay, before we, before we dwell into to, to what's happening, how many has heard of the, the site Kaggle? Oh, a fair few. Anyone uh, competing on Kaggle? Oh, one or two. Um, it's, it's really, so for those of you who didn't raise your hands, really, it's really a, a site where you can uh, compete in building the best models for um, uh, public uh, problems. So, so companies or others can post problems on this website and, and data scientists and apparently actuaries can contend in, in, in getting the best uh, model uh, to fit that specific problem. The, the thing is here that I think most of the times the... Uh, the problem is anonymous, or it, it's, it's not re revealed what we're actually trying to fit. 
So domain expertise uh, in, this mat in, in, in this respect becomes irrelevant. And I'm going to come back to the, the, the case of domain expertise. So, so what you're basically doing is competing on finding the best method for a, for a given problem. But, and this is perhaps uh, the key message for today, so be awake on this slide and then you can go back to sleep. Is it really all about the method? And the answer is obviously no, because otherwise I would not have asked that way. We think that data is actually what you start with. When doing machine learning, you start with data. This is a... Um, uh, uh, also a, a, a big thing, and I mentioned there's more and more of it. So, so what you do is trying to source as much of it as you can uh, with the most breadth from the maximum number of sources to be able to have as many variables uh, as possible to, to predict a, a given response. Uh, this is not my personal opinion. It's also my personal opinion, but it's, it's, it's kind of what we tout uh, to, to clients. And secondly, we don't go to models yet, is factor engineering and, and uh, defining of response variables. It's actually quite important with the vast amount of data you have available at the moment to think about what your factors uh, should be and what, what the a meaningful response is. An example of uh, response could be if you're trying to model the effect of parking sensors uh, on claims, you shouldn't be modeling accidental damage, you should be modeling parking claims. Uh, it's quite obvious, but we tend to model what we always model. We have third-party liability with accidental damage and so forth. Uh, but actually, think a bit about this uh, is, is crucial, and that's where domain expertise actually come into play. And then only after you've done these two first steps, we think you should go to methods. And it's a very small blob, and it's even shaded to make it more uh, visual. First, you do the data. You think about the data. Then you do the factor engineering response uh, variables. And then you can begin to think about which methods actually solve your problem. So we talk a very uh, short bit about data before we, we go on to the real topic, which is actually models. An area where, where we're used to is actually uh, having an abundance of data is, is motor insurance. Uh, so either we, in the old days, uh, I've, as was said in the introduction, I've been around for a while. In the old days, you ask the client, what is the horsepower? What is all this? And after half, after half an hour, you came up with a price. But these days you can get these either via the, the, the plate, the registration plate, or other open source, um, open source data, data vendors. In the UK we have a collaboration with, uh, I can't remember the name right now, but basically repair shops uh, providing data to a, uh, a data vendor who then sells it on about uh, claims on the car. And claims, it sounds stupid because we have claims already. Right? No, we don't, because not all claims are reported. And I think, especially in South Africa, looking at the car park, <clears throat> it seems like not all, cars, all claims are reported. So that's actually quite valuable to know. And this follows the car. It doesn't follow the driver, it follows the car. So it's actually quite valuable to know that this car actually has 
uh, 15 uh, repairs that, that, that weren't reported to the insurance company or the insurance industry. But what is important now, with, so not only motor insurance but the wider space, is that you're able to organize uh, these, uh, all these factors into manageable groups so you can do a, a good model. As I gave one example about factor engineering and, and response variables. Uh, this is another one. But in the UK 10 years ago, they had a big problem with body injury claims uh, in motor. Uh, and someone found out that there was a division in, in what people claimed. One is called, we call it insurance risk. Um, and the other one is kind of diplomatically called compensation risk, which is when people claim for something they, they didn't suffer. Um, so just thinking of that response, dividing the models just into two models. We're, we're modeling one and the other. And from these, um, I think many people in the room are familiar with emblems, so, so these are not that uh, marketing slides uh, as they could have been. But, but these are emblems. You can see that the, that the responses are different, or the predictions, sorry, are, are different. That's just an example. Okay, I said that methods uh, were the least important to think about, so now I'm going to spend the rest of the talk uh, talking about methods. Also, that would, wouldn't have been fair to the title I gave. So, so um, we got the context right. Um, and I think in Willis House, what we find that different models are valuable and useful for different places or for different problems. And that is perhaps also a key message. How do you then measure uh, whether a model is good or bad? And you would typically have your own favorites. Um, you have a root mean square error or uh, a chi key or, or whatever. All, all kinds of metrics are around. Uh, a typical one is, is Gini. So I won't go into too much depth uh, of, of the Gini coefficient, but basically ranks the, the observations and then measure how good uh, the model predicts uh, these, this cumul cumulative exposure. Sorry. Um, and, and, and a better model will give a higher Gini coefficient, which is kind of illustrated by the, by the yellow area. So we take a, a good old-fashioned GLM, we fit it, and we get a Gini coefficient of 0.327. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, I think it's very difficult to tell. Uh, I can, as an actuary, um, come with a new model. And what does that mean? Is that better or worse? Well, it's better in terms of Gini. It's, it's a higher coefficient. But how much better is it? Is it significant? I can do the percentage-wise improvement. And what does that say? Is it, is it good or bad? It's, well, it's better, but how much? So, of course, then you can try and do a bit of a sensible thing. You take your GLM, you remove a minor factor, and you get a 1% um, uh, I can't find the word, the opposite of improvement uh, to your GLM, or you do a, a major factor and take that away, uh, and you can say it doubles uh, the decline in, in genium uh, factor. So to kind of say, so 1% is equivalent to removing a, a minor factor from the model. Um, but, and I don't know how, how popular the moppers are in South Africa, I used to, or Sesame Street, or whatever it's called, I used to watch them when I was a kid. Uh, so count from count, uh, just using that to illustrate, if you take a model, you multiply it by 123, you square it, 
and you add 74.5 billion, you actually get the same Gini coefficient. So you can do a really rubbish model and get the same Gini coefficient as a good model. It's just a word of caution. Um, of course, it's only go if you have a monotonous um, monotone uh, function. Uh, it comes from the ranking of the observations. What we tend to do when looking at this, uh, whether a model is good or bad, and again, Emblem users will be familiar with this, is a double lift chart. So you, do, you have a new model and an old model, or proposed, uh, current model and proposed model, and then you rank the difference in, in uh, predictions from these two models and order them in, in deciles or in, in, in bands, and then you take an out-of-sample um, uh, test and see how well the models perform to the observed. Uh, and it's clearly here that uh, the blue, the new proposed model, is, is following the, the observed better. So we accept this to replace the current model. And we, we tend to think that there's a better way of doing it than just uh, looking at a coefficient. But for this purpose and for this talk, we would like to have a coefficient anyway, so what we could try and do is take this um, double lift chart and associate a financial value estimate instead so uh, we'd have to do some, some uh, assumptions about um, elasticities, uh, but then having done those assumptions, we can actually say and calculate the actual estimate experience uh, in out-of-sample data. And that then gives a loss ratio instead of a Gini coefficient. So going back to the, the scale from before, we can see that this new model uh, on a and I've put two elasticities here, so six could be the UK market, and two could be the European market, and I don't know where, South Africa, perhaps somewhere in between. Um, and they would see that, that uh, in this case, the, you know, on the low, uh, low elasticity basis, you actually get the same improvement uh, as you do measuring by the Gini, so 1% uh, improvement, or that's yeah, half, half of that, sorry. <coughs> Of course, this measure is correlated with the Gini, as shown by this graph, but not com completely. So you can get Gini improvement without getting any additional loss, uh, loss ratio improvement. Good. So let's suppose we've proven the value in terms of predictiveness or we have not, it depends on how, how well we did the, the estimation uh, or the modeling. What else do we consider? So predictive power is of course very important when doing machine learning modeling or other, other models um, in general. There seems to be some nervousness, nervousness about not being able to uh, explain what's driving the price to your clients. Uh, anyway, when we talk to, to clients, uh, there is. And perhaps less of that if you're only talking about machine learning driving components of the price, so a customer lifetime value or other, other elements of it. But certainly, um, there are different things to, to consider, and, and the first one I mentioned going clockwise is the interpretation bit. Um, are you willing to not be able to explain the price where it's coming from to 
compliance or indeed management or your boss. Then there's a dimension uh, or, uh, of, of, of table implementation. So how do you implement your rates? Uh, typical way of doing it uh, still is via tables and very few, if any, uh, machine learning models are implementable that way. Uh, stability is also an issue, so what happens if you change your parameters or hyperparameters a little bit? Does, does the model prediction swing widely? Execution speed is particularly interesting if you're doing uh, point-of-quote uh, quotations, and many of them, uh, you have to give a, a quote right away, and you can't wait for a tree to fit um, in, two, in two, min two minutes. And finally, the analytical time and effort, and that's where you guys come in, uh, how much time does it take in the back room to actually fit these models? If you only have a uh, third-party liability and an uh, accidental damage model is perhaps not that important, but if you have 50 models to fit, it becomes an issue how, how much effort need to go into these. Okay, coming from a, a company with a GLM backbone, so to speak, it's not surprising that we think that the GLM is, is green on most of these uh, dimensions. Um, of course, also being uh, mindful of having a good software, not mentioning any names, um, to, to, and especially also on the analytical time and effort. I mean, that's still the only uh, uh, yellow, uh, amber, red uh, bubble, uh, but, but on the execution speed, of course, uh, very good Im at implementation. It, those are basically relativities goes directly into a table structure. Which models do you then use where? And then I, I said in the introduction I'm going to come back to domain expertise. Um, and there's balance between data scientists and, and actuaries, or, or the, perhaps not the right way of saying it, uh, because actuaries can also be data scientists. But if you have insurance people with domain expertise, we think that's a very important thing to throw into the process when doing machine learning. Um, so going back to the Kaggle, uh, it's not just throwing a model at a problem. Uh, it's a matter of finding the right data, response variables, uh, sorry, resp responses and, and factors. So we, that's, that's an important uh, takeaway from today. Okay. Um, being conscious of time. I, I, I'm only going through two methods and then not in very much detail. So, uh, if we focus on trees for a very short um, time and just take a simple tree example where I just plotted an underlying trend here and what a tree <coughs> actually does, you, you have a, a split and then you, f you fit according to that split. Sorry. Uh, so if you have one splitter, you get this, not very good approximation. Uh, if you have a second split, you get this, it's not very good either, and a third split and so on. So that's, that's the basic notion of, 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 of trees. Um, they do have some shortcomings, uh, and I didn't, I didn't know about the price before I came here, but actually I, I did estimate, uh, perhaps that's not viewable either from the back row, but this is actually the, uh, the feedback score depending on the number of equations in your talk. Uh, and uh, trees might miss such interactions and just go for the, for the average. Uh, I guess the interaction here being actuaries, non-actuaries is also not that irrelevant because I think you're all actuaries. They're also 
struggling with categorical variables. So here I've plotted the feedback score depending on first initial. And you can see, I, I, I didn't make this up, but C is actually scoring quite high on this one. So, and I have two Cs in my initials, so, so it should be scored double, double as high. But a tree might just be picking that up even though it's noise and, and fitting a trend to that if you have sufficiently many splits. And they can be bad at, at turning points as well. The last one was uh, the slide um, satisfaction per, per word count. Um, but they, they can be pretty easy to interpret. I mean, the, the, the tree structure is easy to interpret. Uh, quick and dirty, uh, good for quick and dirty solution and useful, useful as an early diagnostic tool. Then I'm gonna move on to uh, number one topic of uh, our meetings with clients, um, and that's gradient boosting machines, or GBMs for short. I don't know how many have heard of that, uh, that notion here in South Africa. Anyone using it in anger? Or not, oh, perhaps you're not willing to say so in public. That's perfectly all right. Um, but I did see a hand or two. Um, so what a, a graded boosting machine is all about, a GBM, is really just a sum of trees. So you take uh, a sum of uh, a whole lot of trees and you have to define some hyperparameters. Uh, one being the learning rate or the shrinkage is how much of the uh, iterated tree you actually add to your model. Uh, you have to choose an interaction depth, so number of splits allowed, and, and then the number of iterations or the number of trees. And finally, the back fraction is how much of the data you're fitting in or fitting to in each iteration. So you can do um, random sampling uh, from, from the data. We're doing a, a simple example again, uh, which is just one factor is the same underlying trend as before, using a, an interaction depth of one, which is kind of simple step functions and a uh, learning rate of 10%, so the lambda is 10, and we use the entire data set in each iteration. And what you get is, so you get the same here in the first, and then you add 10% of the first uh, fit. Is that this? Yeah. So the slightly uh, more shaded yellow uh, at the bottom. Um, you add that to your, to your fit, and then you do a second, uh, those are the, the residuals, and then you do a second uh, fit, and you add 10% of that to the model, and, and uh, perhaps it's easier to do with this one. You go on, and, and you learn as you, as you go, hence the learning rate, and you get the, the blue, which is the predicted, gets closer and closer to the underlying trend. And after a good many iterations, so, a thousand iterations, you actually get a perfect fit. Uh, how do you calibrate these assumptions? You use n-fold uh, cross-validation. Not going into too much detail about that. So what, what does a GBM look like? Uh, well, very obvious, it's, it's very intuitive, but no, there are actually many of them, and there are many more of them, and in the end, it looks something like this. And how do you explain that to a regulator or a boss or a client? Um, does it work? And how does it work? So, so we can go back to the, 
to the uh, measurement uh, scale uh, from before. And actually, we do find significant improvement in uh, using a GPM over GLM, both on the measuring on the Gini uh, scale and on these loss ratio bases, uh, or less so on, on a less elasticity too, so a lower elasticity uh, environment. Um, you could also add something to this. So ensembles is just a French word of average. So you can add a GBM and a GLM, or taking some average or mean between the two, and you actually get uh, even better results on a Gini scale. Uh, measuring on a loss ratio on a financial scale, you actually don't get much value out of it. So the Kaggle people get really excited, but the business doesn't really care about this. What if we do take a GBM? I mean, those, those are different to fit, or sorry, to implement in your rating study. We, we could try and fit down a GLM to the GBM predictions. So then we get back to our predictions, or sorry, relativities and a known structure. It seems like you actually, in a genie world, you don't get far, but uh, in the financial terms, you get roughly a third of the way in both uh, elasticity uh, terms. Now, there is a bit of a, a disfavor to GLMs here because GBMs are allowed to go wild here. They're just fitting. They can use any higher order interaction they, they, they could find. So it's, it's not really a fair test. Um, the GLM, they might miss the higher order interactions because the modeler didn't know how to fit them. Um, so what we're saying is we're really not comparing like for like here. Uh, what we, we try and do uh, to, let's say, level the playing field is what if we let the GLM fit automatically, so also searching for higher order interactions. And this is just a, a, a graphic showing a, a saddle interaction. Then actually we do get a bit further, a bit closer to the, uh, to the, let's say, current best results. Especially if we look in a low elasticity environment, you can see you're almost all the way to the, uh, to the GBM and the ensemble. It seems like a higher elasticity world and Gini world, we are still uh, a bit behind. Back to this one, and, and, and how does it work and can we interpret these results? Uh, just one comment here, conscious of time. It's, uh, it's viewing uh, a new world through an old lens. So we're used to looking at relativity charts and that and so forth. Uh, now we have something similar. We could use partial dependency plots or ice plots or what have you to be able to interpret what's going on and perhaps catch some interactions. Uh, that's, going, that's what's going on in the bottom left corner with, with the coloring. That's because there might be an interaction present that we've missed. Um, but the, it is a challenge to interpret these results in a, in a way that we are used to. Um, finalizing with, with, with GBMs, uh, we actually think they're very good predictively. Um, unfortunately, different, difficult to interpret, as I said. Um, they're difficult to implement, uh, and the execution speed is also lagging, especially if you have very complicated trees and a, and a lot of them. 
Um, but of course, if you have a modern rating engine, then implementation gets a lot easier. Sorry for that, move to the next slide. Um, I've talked a little bit about few of the models, uh, two to be, to be honest, but as I said at the beginning, a lot of these exist uh, out there. Um, and the key takeaway would be that the different models have different advantages and disadvantages. So it is really important after the data uh, exercise uh, and actual domain expertise has been applied to think about the problem you're trying to solve and which method is uh, best suited for that. And perhaps even take in the business need and in the model you're trying to uh, apply and, and the problem you're trying to solve. We see too many clients who kind of have a strategic objective to do uh, machine learning in one form or another, be it because of executive pressure or the hype around it, uh, or just employees wanting some fun to do. Um, but it, we often see there are more important things to fix first. Um, this could be within your current models or just using more of the data you have available or using data enrichment. So actually, often, quite often, there's more value to, to fixing the, 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 the house order first before moving into the, to this field. But once you understand the data, understand the business need, uh, then you can go to the next step in saying what does machine learning help us attain. I have two slides on in conclusion. So, and these go to, to a high word count, so that draws down my, my uh, feedback score. Sorry for that. Um, there are many forms of machine learning models, uh, as I've, I've shown already. Um, it seems that new data and feature response engineering generally add more value. I said that before, so I'm just um, repeating that here again. But we also do need to continuously um, monitor what's going on with uh, new methods and within the development of those. Uh, as I pointed out with the Gini curve, traditional measures of prediction value might not always reflect uh, what's happening in insurance. And it's not all about the predictive power anyway. Uh, you also need to be able to compute in time and to implement and so forth. In terms of GBM, which I spent most time uh, on talking about today, they can actually pr provide some uh, predictive lift, um, mainly because they can capture higher order effects. But if, are you actually willing to not uh, be able to explain what the model does or see what the model does? and just use some broad diagnostics. Uh, in terms of the effort required to, uh, to understand these higher order effects uh, in a short time span. Um, business leaders and regulators, I mean in the US they have to file rates. How do you file a GBM? It can be quite difficult. Uh, and then the last two, do you have the software and hardware to fit large data sets and also a rating engine that can implement GBMs? I think those, there's actually a final slide as well. I think I'll skip that. Um, in terms, of, I've talked about machine learning. And some of you might say this is not really machine learning. Going back to the very first slide with the Go board. In terms of true machine learning, so uh, computers teaching themselves how to price a risk without any human intervention, 
we haven't actually uh, seen that deployed yet, or perhaps some murmuring about uh, research in that area. But the true machine learning, uh, if it's the essence of machine learning word, we haven't seen that deployed yet. And I think that's probably a bit further out. And we need to understand the models better before we go there. Okay, another unconscious of time again. We have 10 minutes less back, uh, remaining of the, of the coffee break. I think I'll stop here and say thank you again for having me and for the invitation. Yeah, I can, I can also put, pull on my glasses so I can actually read that one. Uh, why consider the genie if what you really care about is a loss ratio? Yeah, I think that's what we're saying, right? The genie is just a traditional measure, and that's used in uh, uh, machine learning, land, Kaggle land, whatever. We would look at either double lift charts, as I showed uh, one slide, or going further from that, attaching a financial value to to that estimate. So I completely agree, and sorry if I don't, didn't make that statement. Uh, please give another brief explanation. So perhaps I can go back to that slide. No, so what you're trying to achieve is you have your predictions on a good, uh, on a new and a proposed model. You know what the predicted loss ratio is for, for sorry, predicted uh, frequency and severity are for each. If you, and you know the actual experience on the out-of-sample data, you know the loss ratio on the out-of-sample data. If you then use the new model to predict uh, uh, the loss ratio of the business you actually get, and you use some form of elasticity measure to uh, predict the volume you get from that business, then you can get a loss ratio from the new model and compare that to the old model. And the, the, the percentage difference in the slides were than the difference between the two predictions. Oh, I got a marketing question. How, how nice. I don't think we have any Wittlesdorf Watson employees in the audience, so it must be a genuine one. Um, is, is, are we considering building other machine learning methods besides uh, GLMs into the emblem? So I wouldn't consider GLM to be a machine learning method, but uh, if it meant to be GBMs, so GBMs already built in, not into Emblem, but into Radar, which is a uh, similar uh, software suite, and in not, uh, not so distant future, they will actually be the same, so Radar and Emblem. Right now, it's only GBMs in there, um, but we are, we are currently building more into it, and actually, in Radar, you can consume machine learning methods from other software, so R, for instance. So you can import that into, into uh, Radar. Once you've imported that into Radar, you can deploy it directly if you, have a, if you have a rating engine that we also sell. Sorry. Um, I'm still standing in front of the Deloitte sign, so I'm allowed to say that. Uh, are data scientists going to take, to take over the pricing actuarial roles or even move into reserving? Uh, a careful yes to that one. Uh, well, take over is, is perhaps uh, is overdoing it. Um, certainly, data scientists and the like will have more to bring to the table in an actuarial problem. You don't need an actuary to, to fit a GLM, actually. 
you perhaps need an actor to help build the GLM. Um, and I think it's back to the slide I had previously. It's, it is a little bit about domain expertise, how you structure the data, which data you put into the mix, how you, you uh, define your responses and engineer your variables. So I don't think they will take over. I certainly think they have more to bring to the table. And I think that perhaps also actuaries should uh, re-educate themselves in the fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, in order to be able to, to actually participate in that as well. Okay, we've run out of questions and we've run out of time. So thank you once again. Enjoy the rest of the conference.